listen on as I read Leviticus chapter 19, the first half of the chapter, so verses uh, 1 through 19, uh, or, or 1 through 18, excuse me. We are still in what is called the Holiness Code of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1. Give your attention now to God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord, your God. And if you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering, To the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and and on the next day. And if any remains until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. And if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an abomination. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave it, uh, leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. You shall not profane the name of the Lord, uh, of, of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with him or with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your brother. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are once more for your word and We acknowledge uh, once again as ever that uh, in your word we find the words of life and we know that man shall not live by bread alone but every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And certainly we are able to appreciate the relevance and the value of this material to us today. So much of it repeated in the New Testament and even if not then uh, it is still obvious from the standpoint of just the morality of what you are expressing. Here is the moral law. Here is what we're meant to keep God, we pray that we might have ears to hear what you have to say to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. I was interested uh, to discover, and I think this is a very fitting way to describe this passage. In my reading this week, uh, Leviticus chapter 19 was called the Levitical Decalogue, which I think is, as I said, very fitting. In essence, uh, what that means is that the Ten Commandments are now restated in the book of Leviticus, And uh, in particular, they are stated within the context of the emphasis and the theme 
of Leviticus, namely the, the holiness of God. Whereas the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus were stated within the context of God's great deliverance from Egypt. Here uh, it, it is within the context of setting up the tabernacle and the worship which occurred there. And the holiness then uh, that was required of the people in the worship of God. And also, uh, as I hope to stress, the holiness that became possible as a result of uh, the ministry of grace through the priesthood in the tabernacle. And so what we have here, it isn't precisely this, but it's more or less a restatement of the Ten Commandments with certain variations uh, under the general need for holiness. And so uh, we are helped here in our general definition of holiness. What is holiness? That's uh, the question that we have. Certainly that is a concern uh, one would hope in Reformed churches and Reformed preaching. But what is holiness? Well, holiness, uh, we could say very simply is, in light of what we see here, keeping the commands of God. It's not just abstaining from particular practices of uh, the nations or the heathens that you find in the world, but it's keeping the commands of God that you find in the Bible. That's the way to be holy. That's the way to be different from others. That isn't what you find the unbelievers doing, but that's what you find people in the church doing. They're people who delight in and keep the law of God. And so the life of holiness is a way of describing very simply the life which is devoted to God. Now, I would want to break uh, this down into two main headings. And the first is just a general outline of the laws that are found here. You don't find commandments 1 through 10 stated 1 through 10. Uh, they're, they're stated in, in, in a different order. And in fact, not all of them are stated, but nearly all of them. And then having done that, I want to look at or, or to make uh, several observations about uh, these laws. So, first of all, a general outline of the laws found here. Note, uh, first of all, the division of the text. Verse 19 indicates a new section. You shall keep my statutes. Uh, that is indicating uh, a kind of part two, at least from the standpoint of the preacher. Uh, the Lord is indicating a new section has begun. And certainly, I think you will agree that verses 1 through 18 uh, provide more than enough material for one sermon. Uh, so if only for the sake of convenience, we will leave off at the end of verse 18. Uh, though I think, as I say, we have good reason to believe verse 19 points uh, to a new beginning or a new heading, a new section. Well, the first thing that we have is, is something that I've noted before. The first law that is stated is really the central law of the whole holiness code. And that is verse 2, uh, a, a statement that is Given again in scripture in the New Testament, first Peter, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. That is what I am calling the law of holiness itself. It is a general summary of everything that the Lord is describing. Following that need, generally speaking, for holiness in verse four or excuse me, verse three, uh, the Lord says, in summary form, you are to keep the first and the second table of the law. He's summing up both tables. You're to honor your parents. And you're to keep my Sabbaths. The fourth and the fifth commandment or in the order it comes to us here, the fifth and the fourth commandments. And and, uh, and 
If you have certain questions about this, I'm just, in essence, uh, giving you a general analysis. If you have questions about, well, why did he do that? Well, that's where uh, the second point comes in. We're just noticing the laws themselves. Uh, themselves. As a third law, in verse 4, the Lord restates the third commandment. Do not turn, or excuse me, the second commandment, do not turn to idols. Idolatry is forbidden. Don't make for yourself molded gods. The law of the peace offering comes next, verses 5 through 8. That uh, closely resembles what you found in an earlier passage. I think that's the only passage in which, uh, at least in this first section, you don't have some connection to the Ten Commandments. The law of the poor is given in verses 9 and 10. Remember them. Uh, At the fringes of your fields, remember them as the grapes drop from your vines. Don't gather them all. Leave something for the poor. After that, a restatement of the Eighth and Ninth Commandments. And verse 11, you shall not steal. Nor shall you lie to one another. Verse 12, you have the third commandment. Do not swear by the name of the Lord. Do not profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. Number eight, in verse 13, you have what I would call the law of wages. The, uh, the one who hires a worker is to pay his worker. Don't delay in paying him. Don't defraud him. It says that that would be to rob him, which is an application of the Eighth Commandment. Number nine in verse 14, don't mistreat the deaf or the blind. Any number of commandments come to mind there. You are to be just in judging. Number ten, don't be partial to the poor. Don't honor the poor because they're poor. Don't honor the rich because they're rich. Don't be a respecter of persons. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Number 11, now this reminds me, if you're familiar with the larger catechism on the ninth commandment, it brings this verse to mind. In fact, I'm certain that this verse is quoted in that uh, section where it talks about talebearing and gossiping. Well, that's what the Lord says here not to do. Don't go about as a talebearer among the people. Don't go about as a gossip. That is a violation of the ninth commandment. Stop spreading rumors about your brother. Stop delighting uh, to hear a bad report. But to sum it all up, God states the royal law of love. Don't hate your brother in your heart. You know, sometimes we think that the Old Testament is all about the external, and yet here we find that holiness is a matter of the heart. You'll rebuke your neighbor. Don't bear his sin. Isn't that interesting? This brother whom you love, be sure that you don't hate him and yet at the same time that you're willing to rebuke him as a token of your love. Lest you bear his sins. Don't take vengeance, the Lord says. And don't you remember, Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 12 at the end. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It isn't a matter of the holy man to take it into his hand. Uh, Don't even bear a grudge. But love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. The royal law of love as a way of stating the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not hate. You shall not even bear a grudge, let alone uh, take uh, or or, I mean, you, uh, you shall not take vengeance, let alone bear a grudge. But you should love your brother. And so you have nearly all of the commandments restated.
I think only the first. Uh, so maybe uh, the first and the tenth. Well, let me make a series of observations about these laws. We're talking about holiness. That's what we have to keep before uh, us at all times in the course of finishing out the book of Leviticus. And this is something, as I say, that has, I I would hope, in in the setting of this church, uh, a a kind of paramount importance in uh, in our thinking. And our great concern is to know what is it to be holy. And that, that I think, uh, speaks uh, to the, the abiding relevance of a passage like this. And as some of you have noticed as well, I might note, it, it causes it to fit in very nicely with Romans chapter 6. You're bearing fruit to holiness, Paul says now. You, you formerly were, were not bearing any fruit at all. You were living a fruitless kind of life. But now, as new men and women in Christ, you're bearing fruit to holiness. But even then, Paul leaves it at that. He doesn't tell us, what is this fruit of holiness? Well, the first thing that I would say in answering to the, the question in light of the teaching of these verses. And it's the same thing I've been saying, but I, I feel the need to say it over and over again. And the Lord seems to feel the need to say it over and over again as well. And that is how God obviously takes the priority in the concerns of holiness. Do you want to know about holiness? Do you want to know what it is to be holy, holy yourself? Then you ought to know God. You have to know God. That was something we saw uh, last time. And it's something we're going to see again and again. And we aren't good students of this subject unless we see him as the priority and standing at the center of the concerns of holiness. Why should we be holy? Here's the answer. Because God is holy. Just like uh, the question, why should we believe the Bible is the God of word? Answer. Uh, The word of God, excuse me. Why should we believe the Bible is the word of God? Because it's the word of God. Well, here's here is uh, the same line of reasoning. Why should we be holy? Because God is holy. And what does holiness mean for him? Well, it means this. It means his essential difference. It means his transcendent majesty, his separateness from sinners, his inapproachable glory. But the, the whole wonder of Leviticus And of the whole of the Bible, and indeed of the Christian experience, is that we are able to approach a God who is holy. We are able to dwell in his midst. We are able to dwell in his courts. Even though he says, I'm separate from sinners. He says, I will dwell in the midst of my people. And I will enable them to draw near unto me. So that, now to to borrow language Uh, From somewhere in Exodus, I don't remember where, but so that they will be sanctified by my holiness. In other words, holiness as the concern of God becomes the concern of those who dwell in his presence. It has a kind of uh, pervading and, and constant relevance to our lives. And we're meant to see this, not just to behold the holiness of God, but Uh, To get a hold of it for ourselves. And so the next thing I would say is that holiness is always practical. There is a temptation when we begin with the notion of God's holiness to think of it purely in a theological or even in a theoretical sense. That's the danger of only talking about God's holiness. The danger is that uh, we will think of God's separateness and we will... 
well, we will think that we can never understand it nor touch it. We will see it as something that is always beyond us and out of our reach. The holiness of God. But here, what God is saying, especially in Leviticus chapter 19, is that holiness for man is something that's eminently practical and concrete. It's something that has to do with the way that you live and the way that you relate to other people. The stranger, the neighbor, uh, the family member, and, uh, and even and especially God himself. But how does holiness come about in a man's life? Well, that brings us back to the first point. And it is, first and, first and foremost, an awareness of who God is. You can't be holy unless you know who God is. And I've already said that God is holy. And that that has to be our starting point. Be holy for I am holy. But did you notice the refrain as well? Not just what he says in verse 2 as a kind of starting point. But what follows each of the commands. Do not turn to idols nor make for yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord your God. You shall leave uh, you shall leave grapes on the field for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. On and on he goes. Verse 14, verse 16, and then verse 18 at the end. Again and again he says. It's, it's interesting to note that God is stressing his holiness and his being before the command, but also after, after the command. And when he says, I am the Lord your God. He's saying that you belong to me. That is essential to the whole idea of holiness. We don't belong to ourselves, but God is saying uh, that I am claiming you for myself. I freed you uh, to use the imagery and the ideas of Exodus. I freed you from the bondage in Egypt. I've brought you out of the house of Egypt. I've set you free and I've made you my own. Now, that is exactly what God is saying to us as well in Romans chapter 6. Having been freed from sin, you've become slaves of God. Included in this whole idea that we belong to God. That he has purchased us uh, with a price. Is that there is nothing optional about this. God is not saying, I think it would be good if you did this. I think it would be a good idea if you lived like this. Obviously, that's ridiculous. You read a passage like this and you realize God is saying, you must live like this. I demand it of you. You shall do this. You shall not do this. But tell me honestly whether or not you treat holiness as something that is absolutely necessary in your life. Something about which there is no option whatsoever. Do you always, in the course of your life, feel the restraint of these verses? Or are you still treating holiness as something that is optional? Do you hear the Lord saying at the beginning of your days, be holy as I am holy. And at the end of the day, I am the Lord. Do these things determine how you live always? Or do you sometimes treat them as though they were optional? That's the test. That's the test if we know anything about holiness and the holy life. Whether we know what it is to live in God's presence. Whether we know what it is to be redeemed by him. By the blood of the lamb. As a way to greatly bolster this thought in the eyes of Christian people. Let us always remember. 
that the same concern and the same arguments are found in the New Testament. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, he says, As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. You see, he's quoting this very thing, and he's saying, I want you to be concerned, gravely concerned about how you live. And to measure your attitude and your life and your conduct by the standard of God's word, always. There's also what Paul says. There's many passages I might quote, uh, but there's, I, I find the point is especially powerful when we, we find those places where Paul is, or Peter is quoting the Old Testament and then exhorting Christians on that basis because that's precisely what I'm doing here. Well, Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, that, that we are not to be unequally yoked with the unbeliever. He's not actually talking about marriage even though that's how we always apply that passage. He's just talking about our fellowship with the world. Not to have too close association with sinners. Quoting the Old Testament, he says, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then he exhorts Christian people along these lines, there, along these lines. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. And so my point is simply this, uh, and, and, and it seems this is the kind of thing we need to be reminded of always, that there's nothing optional about this. The, the New Testament or the Old Testament never gives us any wiggle room here. Now, in one sense, if you understand the argument, you recognize that this is true of us already, that the Christian in the church is already holy. We've been made holy by God himself. He's declared it about us. Uh, Indeed, that's part of the reason that holiness in a practical and ethical way becomes uh, so necessary, if not inevitable, for the Christian. It's because he is holy. But it is this fact that brings about the need for practical and ethical holiness in his behavior, as Peter puts it. The conduct, uh, the way that you live, or if you take what he says later in 1 Peter 2, what people see. And when people look at you, what do they see? Holiness is something uh, not only that isn't optional, but that is tangible. It's a kind of light that's shining in a dark world. It's something that's evident in our lives, something which men can see. And so holiness is not optional. It's the calling of the church always in every age. And it is the particular calling of every Christian individually. A man who is a Christian is not free to decide these matters. He is not free to decide how and in what manner he wants to live. He's now a slave to God. Romans chapter 6 once more. The trouble, of course, is for us to grasp this, to fully reckon with this reality so that it transforms everything about us. But I've already suggested the way to do this is to keep God and his holiness at the forefront of our thinking Always be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. I'm the Lord, your God. Another way to put all this. Borrowing from one commentary uh, that I read this week is that holiness is always up to date. 
Not only is it never optional, but it's always up to date. Didn't you notice that? When I read Leviticus 19 and then I read 1 Peter chapter 1. And did you ever think that it was out of date? You read Leviticus, the holiness code, and you think, well, what does that have to say to me? Well, I'm telling you it is a great deal to say to you. And it is a great deal to say to the Old Testament Jew. Now, I'm not saying that it's relative. That's how the liberal treats a text like this. And that's certainly not what I'm saying. But you will always notice uh, certain features in the holiness codes of Scripture that are that have relevance to the particular age in which they are given. Now, does that mean holiness is relative? No, it doesn't. But it does determine which behaviors to avoid, for instance, just as it uh, determines which behaviors become important, especially as the essential difference between the Christian and the age in which he lives is at stake. This is the essence of holiness. The difference between the believer and the world. And so you notice one, dif- uh, one thing in the Old Testament and something else in the New. For instance, remember what I said about the law of the peace offering. Well, you don't find the law of the peace offering in the New Covenant. But the fact that you find the law of the peace offering in the Old Covenant doesn't mean this holiness code uh, suddenly is irrelevant to us and has no value. You just simply realize that here is something that had a particular importance in that setting. It doesn't have importance in our setting anymore, of course, uh, but many of the other things do. You understand here why the Lord was stressing this, not only for the sake of Israel's distinction from the nations, but even in the way that Israel went about her worship uh, within Israel itself. Uh, You were to go forth. You are to do it in a particular manner. You are to do so not in an ostentatious manner that draws attention to yourself, but do so freely. Uh, so many things the Lord is saying to Israel in that point. Well, when you come to the new covenant, you notice at times a different emphasis. Much is the same, but some things are different. Now, the holiness code looks something like this. Not that the church is living a totally separate existence, as was the case in Israel. But if you look at 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2, for instance, as a kind of New Testament holiness code, what you discover, and certainly this is true of us now, is that we are living among the Gentiles. And uh, what is even worse, you might say, uh, though it is certainly the will of God, just perhaps we aren't so happy about it, is that you're being ruled by Gentiles. You're not being ruled uh, by Israelites anymore. You're among the Gentiles. You're being ruled by the Gentiles. You're even submitting to Gentile. That is unbelieving rule in many cases. And yet what is so interesting to notice is that the overarching idea of holiness is the same. Whether you look in Leviticus chapter 19 or 1 Peter chapter 2. And that is the idea that we belong to God wherever we find ourselves. And we are committed to observing His ordinances. We could also observe that the essence of our duty to God is the moral law. Holiness has to do with this more than anything else. If if you're interested in defining holiness, then I can point you to no surer guide than the Ten Commandments. Whether you find them in Deuteronomy chapter 5 or in the Sermon on the Mount or Exodus 20 or here in Leviticus 19, the moral law of God. Is the ceremonial law at times interspersed? Yes, it is in the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean that this isn't the moral law. And the moral law has relevance in every age. 
The reason that the Ten Commandments reappear here, even though they were stated in Exodus chapter 20, is to show us how central these these laws are to the practice of true holiness. Remember, I think I said this recently in a sermon, and I was quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, and let me just give a paraphrase of that thought. Holiness is not a feeling. We live in a sentimental age. We think that it is. If I'm holy, I have to feel a certain way. Well, no, you don't. You might feel a certain way, but you might not. Holiness is not a state of mind. Holiness is a way of life. It's one which God governs and outlines in his word. It is the life which is devoted to him and consecrated to him. The man who is holy is like the blessed man in Psalm 1 who meditates on God's word. He doesn't walk in the ways of the wicked, nor stand, nor sit. But daily he dwells and meditates on the law of God. He's blessed. He's bearing fruit. That's real practical holiness. The man who observes and keeps God's law. Uh, To that same end, uh, and I, I promised I would return to this. Let me do so now. Do you notice the priority that's given to the Sabbath itself? Be holy even as I am holy. Revere mother and father and keep my Sabbaths. I'm the Lord your God. It's not incidental that the Lord begins with this. I'm not sure how else to put it except to say the way to be holy is to keep the Sabbath. That there is no real practical holiness in the church but for keeping the Sabbath. The man who does not keep the Sabbath is not a man who's holy. If you think of the command itself, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do you understand that God is saying that the concerns of holiness are attached in a particular way to the Sabbath itself. So that God's holiness is found even as we keep the Sabbath holy. As something that is separate. As something that's dedicated to him. Robert Murray McShane. In his uh, little essay. I love the Lord's Day. He asked the question. In essence. Have you ever known a Christian? Have you ever known a minister? Who was holy? Who was godly? Who did not keep the Sabbath day? It's a rhetorical question. He's assuming the answer uh, that you haven't, that he hasn't at least. Let me just say, how important are our Sabbaths to our holiness? But equally, God says, even before that, recognize the authority of your parents, revere them, fear them. Now, that's the fifth commandment. Now, it's interesting that God leads with that, that thought. Why is that so important? To tell Israel, having just said, I'm the Lord your God, be holy, even as I'm holy, honor your father and mother. Surely there is some significance to the fact that this, along with the Sabbath, is stated first. Well, it's 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 this. Precisely what I was saying earlier. That the whole logic of holiness depends upon our recognition. That we are not autonomous. That God is the sole authority in our lives. He's the one who governs our lives. He's the one who rules us. He's the master. We're the slave. And he places temporal authorities over us as a way to remind us that we are under his authority. And when we seek to throw that off, what we're really doing is saying, God, I'm not interested in your authority. I'm not interested in you. I'm not interested in holiness. That's what the disobedient child is like. That's what the unsubmissive wife is like. That's what the unsubmissive, I know this is self-serving, but I'm only seeking to preach scripture here. That's what the unsubmissive church member is like. 
In every setting, God is saying, I want you to be submissive to the rulers I've set over you. Because in so doing, what you're doing is recognizing my authority. And so to put it in terms of a principle. We are to fear him. And there is no holiness without submission. No holiness without submission. Likewise, did you notice the many, the many settings in which God or, or in which our holiness rather is to be worked out? The variety of settings. It's one of the remarkable things. If you take time to study this passage, the concerns of holiness, I say again, are pervasive. They meet us in the courts of the Lord. That is to say, in the house of God. But they certainly do not stop there. Holiness concerns our use of time, hence the emphasis on the Sabbath. Holiness concerns the home, hence the emphasis on parents. Holiness concerns the workplace, hence the emphasis on wages. It concerns the courtroom, hence the emphasis on truth and justice. And even the courtroom of public opinion, hence the forbidding of talebearing. Holiness warns us not to mistreat others or to show favoritism. And it is all summed up as the moral law always is with the law of love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Don't hate him. Don't hold a grudge. Don't seek to take vengeance. And so we see, as I said earlier, and did you notice that the real test of holiness, God is saying, even in the old covenant is what is in your heart. How is it that you feel about me? God is saying, how is it that you feel about authority in your life? How is it that you feel about your spouse and your children and your parents? How is it that you feel about your neighbor? Do you love them or do you despise them? Are you prepared to fulfill and to do your duty with regard to them? A duty which God has defined, not man. It's what's in the heart, not just what's in the, in the hand or the feet or the eye. Of course, what's in the heart will become obvious in the way a man lives and uses his body. But scripture always says is uh, the concern of holiness. Guard the heart. Guard the tongue. What a, what a fire is set uh, by an unguarded tongue, James says. And Leviticus warns us as well. Don't go about as a talebearer. Don't gossip. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you listen to. All of this is crucial. And all of this is the stuff of Practical, principled holiness. And so we should all look at it like this. There are certain things which are out of place for those who belong to God. Don't do those things. Just as there are certain things which ought to characterize their lives and their behaviors, uh, their attitudes and their hearts. Do those things. But finally, what about social justice? Well, more and more, I am willing to admit that there is a kind of social justice one finds in the Bible. But it, uh, it looks very different than the social justice you find uh, on Twitter or at the university or wherever. In fact, it tends to be the exact opposite. But I will grant there is a kind of social justice. Social justice, I mean, there is a kind of social justice in the Bible. Social justice today means excuse a man because he's poor. Excuse a man because of the color of his skin. Or on the other side, blame a man because of what his ancestors did. Hold him guilty. Force him to apologize. Uh, Thomas Sowell has a good definition 
of uh, what is meant by social justice in the American Academy today. Uh, I'm paraphrasing what he said. I don't have the exact quote. He says, today people are blamed for what they didn't do and they are excused for what they do. That's not justice. And the Lord is saying that the righteous man and the holy man, he's a man who knows what justice is because he's a man who knows what God is like. The scriptural definition doesn't overturn the notion of justice. It sets it right. The scriptural definition says in a social setting, let's say you're in the court of public opinion or let's say that you're in the courtroom. Show no favoritism. Do not excuse the poor man's sin because he's poor uh, for one simple reason. God doesn't do that. And we are to be like God. He doesn't excuse the poor man at the bar of his justice for his sin. He condemns him. At the same time, God says, remember the poor. Be generous and kind. Uh, Don't be full of greed and selfishness. Do you notice the balance always that characterizes the scriptural ethic? See that God has blessed you. And that the poor could benefit from, as it were, the fringes of your surplus. Think about what that means, the fringes of your surplus. But on the other side, don't favor the rich either. That's not justice. You see, we tend to think in terms of extremes. If, if I'm not to favor the poor, that means I'm to favor the rich. No, it doesn't. That isn't what God says. He says, don't respect anyone. Uh, A saying which I came across this week is a very good saying of justice. Justice doesn't look at persons, but cases. That's the saying. Well, it just means this, that as God is no respecter of persons, rich or poor, so neither are we, neither are we. That's what it means when God says you shall do no injustice and judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty in righteousness. You shall judge your, your neighbor. There is. Social justice, if there ever was one. Justice, that is to say, in society, on the social level. The question, then, as I close, that must preoccupy us in our minds, in our study of personal holiness, is, even before what is holiness, what is God like? And then our great aim becomes, and it has been ever since Adam was placed in the garden, To be like God. Holiness is uh, the continual seeking out the imitation of God. The desire to be like him. My life pattern after him. My life in submission to him. But at the same time, we must ever remember that the resources of grace are indispensable to the true practice of holiness. If a man would be holy, let him first be reconciled to God. Remember always that the holiness code in the Old Testament, just as the holiness code in the New Testament, doesn't come first, it comes second. The emphasis is, first of all, you're a sinner, you're unholy, you're unclean. You need to be washed, you need to be reconciled to God. You need uh, the atoning blood of Jesus, that's what you need. That's the only way to have a place before God. You need uh, access by grace into his presence. And that's the great theme of the first part of Leviticus. It's not just worship, but it is the ministry of grace through the blood of the sacrifice and the priesthood. And it is that, beloved, which opens you up to the life of holiness. It's that you've been reconciled to God. And if you haven't been, well, then you can never be holy. But if you have been reconciled to God, not only has God opened up the way, 
but he has placed at your disposal immense and immeasurable resources so that you might be holy, which is summed up in a single word, grace. Remember always that grace is a power. It's a force in your life. It's something that's reigning unto life. And if grace is at work in you, then you can be holy and you will be holy. And more and more holiness will be the thing, the great thing that marks out your life. I hope that's something that you want. I hope that's the great dominating desire of your life. But let us be sure and let us be clear that we know how to get it. Not by the law, but by the grace of God as it is made available through the ministry of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Amen. And let us uh, return now our praise to God as we stand together and sing hymn number 440. Again, Blue Church.